You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, May 22nd. All right, uh, so let's get going. Are there any questions out there? Yes. Go ahead. Hello, good morning. Uh, good, uh, yes, yeah, it's evening, good morning. So, um, yeah, I take the opportunity that we don't, we are not many journalists today, so I can ask you the very long question that I, and the question is so long that probably it would, it would take uh, more time for me to formulate the question and for you to answer. Uh, so, um, yeah, actually, um, yeah, I wanted to sum up basically uh, everything you said during your uh, amazing, uh, amazing uh, conferences so far. To ask you if uh, um, it was really ineluctable that uh, uh, we would come up, would uh, um, wake up in the in the middle of the pandemic, uh, unprepared as as we were, or you think that uh, uh, if all uh, the pieces were in place, like political commitment, funding, uh, research, clinical facilities, market opportunities, then we wouldn't be able before ahead of the pandemic to have all the system in place, meaning having a cost tracing systems, viral tests, serological tests, and everything in place to face this pandemic in a, in a better way. Or, or there was no way actually, even, even if we did everything we could have done, there was no way actually to, uh, to, to contain this pandemic as, as, as more than uh, we, are, we are able to do now. No, I think there's plenty of ways that we could have um, at least mitigated the effects of the pandemic. Uh, for example, some of us had called years ago uh, in a paper in The Lancet for um, a global immunological observatory and, and essentially a, 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 way, a, a system and network of laboratories that monitor the globe in a, in a way that's very similar to how we monitor the weather today. And that's a, that would be a way that had we had a system like that set up, a true 21st century global network that uh, that looks for for infectious diseases and epidemics. I think that that would be something that's uh, very possible in that with current technologies, and also should be done, um, and probably would have been crucial to for both early discovery and and detection of where this virus was spreading, how quickly it spread to Europe and the United States, for example, uh, and it would have given us a much earlier window into what was happening uh, with the virus. And of course, testing for the specific virus would not have necessarily been possible immediately, but having the testing, uh, having, having the infrastructure in place would have gone a very long way to, to rolling out testing and being able to survey and know where the infection was hitting uh, very early on rather than what we saw, which was essentially a rapid, but still slow um, uh, re, re, reuse of existing infrastructure in order to, um, to sort of hodgepodge together a, a testing network. And uh, of course, now we're seeing, if we don't make the change now uh, to our infrastructure, and that's both, that, that's not just testing, that's also using 21st century technologies like mobile, phones and and like why do we still have people calling people to contact trace when we have everyone walking around with a gps unit in their phone if that could somehow be leveraged in a safe 
privacy, uh, private way, I think that that would be absolutely crucial to, to controlling this. So I think there's a lot of use of technology that could have been, that can still be used to control this virus and could have been in place before. The problem is there's just no funding for it. I remember years ago, so I developed in my normal pre-COVID life, I developed diagnostics, very high throughput diagnostics that can look for antibodies uh, of any virus that could infect people. Uh, and I look for all of those hundreds of thousands of different antibodies in, in any drop of blood. And I recall going to a venture fund to, add, to try to get funding to really develop this into a public health platform years ago. And the, re the response I got was, we definitely don't fund public health projects. You know, there's just no money in it. And I think that's, that, has, um, that idea has permeated throughout our society globally, that public health has been just completely underfunded, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere as well. And so um, I think that we have the ability it, it to, if we, if we can have a video, if I can be, if you can see me right now, and you, you can actually see where I'm sitting and a picture of me in real time, then I'm pretty sure we can figure out how to monitor for infectious diseases. Um, and so I, I think we just have to put the minds to it and, and we have to figure out some way to commercialize it too, if that's the way our world works, um, to make these things viable solutions to get companies like Facebook and Google instead of in creating apps that will get people frozen yogurt quicker, we should be creating apps that will help save lives. And, um, and I think COVID will, will probably initialize some of those types of new endeavors, because um, now we're seeing the massive economic and, and, and public health destruction of this virus. But beforehand, I think there was just no real will or, or interest in funding these programs. Yeah, I have a follow-up question on the detection, the de detection part. So, um, um, so there were some um, um, studies, uh, joint studies made uh, by uh, researchers in the US and uh, and uh, virologists in uh, Wuhan laboratory in uh, China that uh, used uh, chimeric viruses, so um, viruses uh, uh, produced artificially in the lab to, to show that, uh, <clears throat> that um, the, the SARS, SARS family viruses actually could mutate in a way that it could uh, actually uh, um, uh, infect uh, humans uh, directly. Uh, the Wuhan laboratory uh, biologists, they, they, they had been studying um, a bat to try to try to, to try to try to trace uh, this kind of uh, uh, SARS uh, diseases to, to animals. So what what else actually uh, the uh, internet, definitely the leading countries like the US uh, and Western countries, they could have done to, uh, in, uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, microbiology research and, and to, to track uh, the, the, the coronavirus in a way that uh, we would have been able to detect them ahead of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, as, since I'm not a scientist, I'm really a hard time to, to figure out how you can track the, the, this kind of viruses uh, over time. Yeah, so I think the best way to track the pathogens, I think, and to see if they're, are, if they're going to jump in, or if they have jumped into humans, is to measure, is to use the immune responses of people. So people, uh, we all carry around inside of us these amazing pathogen detection systems that are uh, more advanced than anything we develop 
like by, that we that we artific artificially develop, and um, and that detection system that exists within all of us are are our own immune systems. We know how to read the immune system now, and so if we can uh, utilize new technologies to to read out the immune system and think of it like a hard drive that we just have to decrypt, uh, then we can do that uh, and we can do that across millions of people a day or a month or whatever it might be, uh, then all of a sudden we have a, a, re a really useful tool to track viruses and see when they have jumped into humans, for example. Um, Currently, the way that it goes is quite different. Usually, we look for viruses themselves, and so we have to identify the actual individual who currently has a virus inside of them, and then sequence that virus and, and pull out the virus, try to, um, try to amplify it and sequence it. That's very difficult, and it's also difficult to find that individual who have, happens to be sick at the moment. But if instead we, we focus on looking at antibodies in the immune response as a, as a, as a mechanism for that, then, then it opens up a whole new slew of options for us where we can, uh, where we can, we know how to read antibodies, for example. We are learning how to read B and T cells and we can use those as our, as our um, sentinel surveillance system uh, and and just start collecting samples on a routine basis from people around the around the globe, in particular in places where viruses are likely to emerge from zoonotic transmission events. And I think that that's actually a very smart and good way to go. And and it's something that we are thinking about setting up um, currently as well. Yeah. So based on what you said, the 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 Center for Disease Control at U.S. For example, together with the Center for Center for Disease Control in China, they should have cooperated to put in place in a in a, in a, a system which actually would have uh, tracked the antibodies development in, in, in people in a, in a China to see if the, these antibodies actually uh, provide the evidence of the new coronavirus. That's correct. That's right, and you can you can look for antibodies that don't even if you so it, it's hard initially to find antibodies that are for a novel virus. Um, but we know that antibodies create cross-reactive responses, for example, with other coronaviruses. So we could be tracking antibodies that are not so specific for the novel one, but that are more generic for lots of coronaviruses. And we would see a spike in those. But we would at the same time, so we'd see a spike in antibodies against a generic coronavirus antibody um, platform. And then we could dive into it. If we do see that spike, we could say, okay, which coronavirus is it? And if we recognize that it's not any of the ones that we know of, then we would be able to infer that it's a novel one and that we need to look very closely and sequence it. So it would be a very, it would be an, an easier and more um, efficient way to monitor for these, for these things rather than waiting for the first 10 people to come into the hospital and die before we actually recognize that there's a novel virus killing people. Thank you. Sure. Next question. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for answering. And by the way, I think Room Raider would give your, your background high marks. Um, what, what is that? Room Raider. They're, they're going around and rating all the rooms of everybody doing online video presentations. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a fun uh, Twitter account. Um, 
anyways, my question has to deal with uh, a particular statistic that's being put out down here in Florida. And I um, am trying to understand generally the best way to communicate positivity rates, right? Positivity rates uh, in a normal world would be uh, the number of people tested versus the number of people who tested positive mm-hmm. on a normal day, right? Um, here in the state of Florida, the governor is communicating a positivity rate that includes the number of people tested and retested on that day, right? So not just the people tested for the first time, but the people getting tested for second, third, or fourth time, um, divided by the total number of new cases. Uh, And we've figured out the actual rate of positivity of the people just getting tested for the first time on that day. Does that make sense, that distinction? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm trying to figure out the sort of epidemiological reasoning or, or the reasoning behind showing one and showing the other, you know, because I, I don't want to go out and say, oh, the, the governor is tamping down the positivity rates or anything like that, because I'm sure he has a reason to do that. But obviously, the positivity rate that we figured out is much higher than the one that he's showing. And I kind of want to learn a little bit more about the rationale maybe behind showing one or the other. So when you're saying multiple tests, you mean like somebody who gets positive today is getting tested tomorrow and is negative and is tested the next day and is negative. Exactly. Right. And perhaps doctors are going and getting retested six, seven times. um, And that's included in his positivity rate that he's showing. So it's it's significantly lower. Um, Yeah, so the problem would be I think that it's an acceptable thing if, uh, let's just pretend for a moment that it is, um, that it's a representative sample, which it's not, but let's pretend it is. Um, If you're looking at people who are negative and have not yet been positive, then that's an acceptable approach because each negative person, if they're getting tested again and they remain negative, they're actually, they're just representing the people in the population. But if they're including people who have already been positive, and then having those people be tested multiple times again in the future and including those, then you are artificially, uh, at least if you're enriching for those people who have been tested positive already and then testing negative and reporting those out, you will artificially decrease the apparent risk to a susceptible person if you're including people who are now resistant. Um, so I, I don't think that there's a good epidemiological reason to do it. I can think that pragmatically, thinking like a laboratory director in a, in a, in a COVID testing laboratory, uh, it is very difficult for the results that get pushed to the public health authorities to know if the data is coming from the exact same person and if they, if they have already been tested negative or positive in the past. Now they do have the data and capacity to do it for sure, because when we report to the state laboratory, we are reporting um, identifiable information so that contact tracing can progress. So I suppose actually it would not be that difficult to filter out those results for people who have already been positive um, and not incorporating their future negative results into the um, into the data. 
Uh, so I, I can't I can't answer the question. I don't think there's an epidemiologically sound reason to do it. I think it might be a more pragmatic reason to do it. That's fascinating. Um, and so then I'm I'm also presented with the unenviable task of making this distinction easy to understand. Um, and I was wondering if you could think of an analogy, or perhaps check me on an on, on an analogy that I'm I'm planning on using which is to show that it's something like, like if a basketball player has a statistic for three-point shots, then you're sort of like filtering in the, the free throws. Do you think it's, it, is, that, is that analogous in your thinking here? Uh, I don't know when free throws happen in basketball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know basketball that much either. I'm just trying to like connect. Um, but I think There's, analogy, yeah. I, it sounds like it's getting to what I would think. Um, although I would say uh, adding in the free throws would do the opposite. They would enrich the counts. Whereas mm. what, what's really happening is if you are, you're essentially adding to your documented rate of positive tests people who are not eligible and if you will to be positive because they've already been positive and they have recovered. So I would say that it's, what is it like? It's, um, it's uh, I'm trying to think what it might be like. It, I mean, to me, it just, you're essentially inflating or deflating the positive rate by by incorporating ineligible people. There is a good analogy. It will probably come to me. I'm, I'm uh, well. I, nobody else has their hand up right now, so I'll I'll just keep thinking about it. Uh, I, I was going to say. I was going to say t uh, testing men for pregnancy because they're that's not. <laughs> that's a great idea. That's a great. Because you're always going with a pregnancy test analogy. So there you go. Yep. It is, it is very much like throwing in or, or asking, um, you know, what are the pregnancy rates and um, adding in females who are on, is it, is it right to add in females who are on contraception reliably into sort of the probability of getting pregnant, you know, but, but adding men is just a much more clear example. Exactly. Everyone, so I, I think that's a good example. Adding. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, I like that. Uh, yeah, I think it does, but it does, you know, I, I don't know what the mindset is there, but I do think it would deflate the, the positivity yeah. rate. Do you yeah. know how many people are actually being, what proportion of the, of the people tested and being reported fit that bill? And how, how do you know that they're in there? Is that being reported? How many times people have been? So, so it took me four days and two sleepless nights to figure out the distinction between these two things. Um, because we had been tracking the total amount of new of new tests reported by the state and graphing that, and we saw a divergence between our positivity rate graph and the positivity rate graph of the state, and I was tasked with explaining that divergence. And the reason why it diverts is because they're graphing people who've been retested, but they have another database where they show you that number without the retests. So we know the difference between all of their new tests on one day and all of their retests on that day. So for example, on the 19th of May, they had a huge increase in testing. 77,000 tests came back that day from the laboratories, which is great. And you'd think the governor would be crowing about it, 
but only 55,000 of those tests were new tests. And they've had days where they've actually had more retests than actual tests. The reason why we like started looking into this is because on the 15th, there was a big positivity spike. We went from 4% positive to 11% positive statewide because there were only 1,300 new tests and 6,000 retests on that day. Hmm. And our, but, well, I guess the other part is um, uh, that the, the retests could come back positive quite frequently too. So if they're including everything, then it won't necessarily, it's hard to say what exactly the bias will be. If you're testing somebody today and then you test them three more days, that's a retest, but it might very well be positive. And then if you test them again three more days later, it might be negative. Um, however, the practice, at least in the healthcare setting of testing, of requiring um, two negatives before a person can go back to work, for example, would likely bias it towards having more testing of negatives than of positives amongst mm -hmm. those retests. So it, it does run the risk of throwing the, the bias towards a, a picture of fewer cases, a fewer rate, of a lower rate. Um, but it, it's, it's a tricky question in terms of, um, in terms of uh, what, the, what it would actually do to the results because we know that a lot of people are getting retested pretty frequently after they've been tested once. So it could actually be inflating the, the fraction. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have to get somebody on the line from their office of epidemiology or from the governor's office and they've just been giving me the cold shoulder for three days down here. So, yeah. Well, thank you. That answers my question. Sure. And I'm going to ask a question that has come up a couple of times in my inbox in the last couple of days. So uh, there have been reports of states, uh, Georgia, Virginia, and some others that have been um, putting all the antibody or serological testing in the same group as the uh, virologic testing and then giving it as one data point for the state. Could you explain why that's problematic to put both those types of tests in the same category? Does that make sense? <laughs> well, the question makes okay. sense. The, the question makes sense. <laughs> the fact that you're asking the question or have to ask the question is beyond me. Um, uh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all to do that. And it, I really worry that it obscures our ability as epidemiologists and as public health people around the globe to be able to understand the best way to do public health and to control this virus. And um, for example, I mean, they, they just have to be separated because antibodies represent uh, a cumulative case count across a population of cases that may have happened uh, last week or, or last year, for example. And, uh, and virus represents what's happening today. And, and that's a big limitation of putting the case counts of the virus. Um, but it, it represents what is happening today alone. So I think that if they are adding the two together, then they have to start considering it as a cumulative case count in ra rather than a, uh, a daily.
but then you're double counting. So for example, if somebody, I mean, if, if you can assume that everyone only gets tested once, which you know, is, is a different question than what was just being asked, but if you can assume that everyone just gets tested once, then you could start assuming that they can be grouped together, but it has to be interpreted as a cumulative case count of all the people who have been infected throughout the entirety of the epidemic to until today um, or up through today. Uh, so if that's the goal, then that's fine. Actually, that's an appropriate thing to do. But if the goal is not that, um, if the goal is to get uh, a, a daily count of the new cases happening each day, then, then antibody is just totally the wrong way to go. I think that in, in general, though, I would say antibody testing is the right way to go from a public health perspective overall, but the databases just need to be separate. There's just no question in my mind. They, they look for different things. It's like, it's like combining, I don't know, um, daily smoking deaths with daily melanoma deaths or something. It, they're just two totally different, two different things. Um, I would say. So I, I can't, I don't know why they're doing that, to be honest. I think that they should be always kept separate. They're, they're coming from two different labs. Um, so that, that's all. Thank you. Um, are there any uh, questions out there? Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to get advantage of, of, of your time today. I'm really happy about it. So um, can, can, you, can you see a link in the chat box? I share a link with you. I just I just um, found out this link. I don't know if you can see it in the chat box. I've got it just a second, and I'll share yeah. it with everybody. So, um, uh, Dr. Mina, I'm, you know you, you, know, you know about this um, initiative called the Global Health Security Initiative. Yes. Uh, sorry, I didn't understand what the question was. The Global Health Security Initiative. Oh, uh, and the Global Health Security Initiative. Yeah. So it was um, a. a, a an international uh, initiative launched in 2014 in the wake of the outbreak of Ebola. And actually, it was, um, it was uh, launch, launched by um, President Obama, I think, in the, in the US. And uh, it was it aimed to actually uh, establish a cooperation framework between uh, uh, countries in order to, to uh, improve uh, their, uh, the preparedness of the, of the national systems uh, ahead of pandemics, and uh, the, this initially consisted of different uh, working packages. For every working package, there was a number of uh, of countries that uh, took the lead, or they were cooperating. So there was one specific working package that I think relates to what what you said, in, uh, answering to my question. So um, there was a working package package called uh, laboratory cooperation. It was led by the US, and one of the contributing countries was China. Uh, and um, so um, this package actually uh, says that uh, the aim is, uh, is, uh, is uh, tracking the new pathogens. I don't know if, uh, if the, 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 the methodology they set up corresponds exactly to what you told me, or it's something different. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to know if. Um, I mean, if, 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 you, if you can look at it and maybe comment and say that it's, if, if it was like, what, what, you, what do you had in mind or it's something else? 
can you do the yeah, I think uh, I, I actually hadn't seen this, which is really surprising, but there's a million things that are started all the time. Uh, so I actually, this is actually very much in line with our idea uh, in general. Um, whether it's actually come to fruition yet is a, is a whole different um, uh, uh, thing. And I don't think it's really, I, my, my very quick understanding or, or read of this is I don't think that this has really um, come to fruition in any practical way. And uh, I do think, however, that it needs to be happening. And this is very much in line with what I was just mentioning a moment ago about our idea of a global, uh, there, there should either be a global pathogen observatory of global, uh, you know, health, you know, it's something along these lines, um, I think is absolutely essential and we should be doing it. And so it's good to see that at least the plan has been put out there besides, you know, in, besides being in just in the, the academic papers. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it's one thing for them to put this out there as, as something to do, but how it's really being used and whether it's being used um, for epidemics and novel epidemics in particular is a different question. And I think it's probably most useful at this very moment in time for things like HIV and, and measles and, and other um, viruses, but I'm not sure that it's set up for rapid deployment of, of observations for new and novel outbreaks. And that's something that I think should be put in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, because, because the, the documents uh, also mentions uh, novel, novel, uh, novel pathogen, pathogens, but I think, as you said, it was a nice project on paper, but I don't think it has ever been implemented uh, seriously in, uh, in concerning uh, new pathogens. Yeah, no, and looking at it, I mean, this is from, I see a link from 2012, so I don't think it's come very far. Um, certainly there are networks though, like we have an example of this, the influenza network, the way that we monitor flu strains every year, which was of course utilized for COVID. It is a good system and one that can be very useful and, and deployed because it exists already. And so I think that, you know, the, the co-option of co-opting that system to, to use it for collecting um, COVID strains was smart. And those are the type of um, things that we should be doing much more robustly and much more globally. Okay, thank you. Sure. Next question. Hi, um, Lancet has pushed out a paper today, uh, phase one results from Ken Sino's uh, vaccine trial using their ad five vaccine. Um, you know, they see some good things, but they also see uh, dampening of the response in um, people with pre-existing immunity to the to the vector and they see quite a bit of pre-existing immunity to the vector. What does that tell us about the prospects for this vaccine? Um, so I, I apologize, I, I thought that this was going to be about a different Lancet paper, the hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> so many. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I clicked on a, the wrong link, I think. Um, so I I believe that um, I so I can't speak directly to that paper until I read it, um, but I would be happy to to talk to you later about it if you want. Um, uh, what I do, I mean, this is the worry. This is definitely one of the concerns about using uh, uh, about using um, 
vectored vaccines for which people might already have pre-existing immunity. It's also the concern about vaccines in general. Uh, if you, in terms of what we call antigenic seniority, uh, if you create a, a response that might that might skew. So if you already have seen a virus or have some pre-existing immunity to it, and then you try to vaccinate against something that's very similar, you run the risk of having your immune response get skewed and kind of pick, picking up primarily the thing that you're already um, immune to or that you've already seen and kind of not focusing so much on the, the new aspect which in this case would be the coronavirus proteins that were placed onto the adenovirus vector. And that can lead to an imbalance where you want to be prioritizing your new, the, the, pro, the immune response against the protein of interest for coronavirus, but you end up picking up and running with the, with the, with the pieces of the virus um, that are forming the, the vector that's carrying the, the coronavirus protein. So, that can certainly, that is a sort of in the same framework as antigenic seniority. And it's one of the reasons why we think that various people have different susceptibilities to flu over their lifetime uh, and why some vaccines against flu don't seem to work so well. Uh, and the same, the same applies here. And so I think it, if it turns out to be really a big issue, then I think it does mean that we have to reevaluate the utility of some of these vaccines or these, uh, these, uh, we have to reevaluate the utility of some of these technologies and think, is there some way to create a safe and effective vaccine from the ground up without having to um, put it on a vector that many people might have already been exposed to in some way or another? Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thanks. But if you had a chance to take a look at the paper, I'd uh, appreciate it, you know, your thoughts. Sure. Later, that's doable. Yeah. Thanks. Um, another follow-up question? Good. Yeah, yeah, I promise it's the last one, then I will, I will uh, shut forever. <laughs> hey, um, so I, it's a kind of follow-up follow question from the question um, uh, that was asked by um, the other journalist, previous journalist. So um, it's a question that was asked by researchers. So I would like to know if, uh, if um, what, what is your thought about uh, uh, vaccines that uh, try to to target um, the common elements of uh, all beta coronaviruses in such a way that actually they can be useful uh, against all kind of coronaviruses. And uh, and uh, uh, I know that because some some companies I was speaking with they said that they had this kind of uh, uh, um, uh, antibody that they developed in the in the wake of the SARS one 2002-2003, but they never been able to use it because there were no more infected people. So I was wondering whether this kind of approach is something realistic or, by, or actually it's impossible to have a vaccine which is good against all kind of beta coronaviruses belonging to the SARS family. So the yeah, I think it's um, what you are asking about is very much uh, in line with the idea of a universal flu vaccine. And um, I think it's possible. I, don't, I would never say it's not possible. I would say that we don't know how to build one right now. The way that we have historically done things like this, we can look at pneumococcus as an example and, and streptococcal pneumonia. And we can ask, uh, how has the pneumococcal world uh, dealt with this question? And, and the way that they have done this is to um, 
uh, just add more serotypes to the vaccine rather than looking for a single piece that will cover all of them. And uh, that, that might be the way to go for, for coronaviruses in the event that this does not necessarily mutate rapidly. It won't work for flu because flu mutates quickly. Uh, with this virus, with coronaviruses, they might not mutate quite so much. So you, you can envision if you're making vaccines, you may as well just put multiple strains in instead of one. And that could, uh, that could be the, the, the way forward for that. Um, if you're trying to build a vaccine that's going to preemptively protect against any novel viruses that may emerge, um, that may help, uh, although we would have trouble knowing it. Um, if, if everyone's vaccinated, then, then they would never really have the chance to jump into the humans um, in the first place and spread. But short of that, I think that there, I think it would be harder to do that. But if we could find some conserved regions of the coronavirus that actually are are sufficiently immunodominant, immunogenic to create good protective immune responses, then it's theoretically feasible. I mean, so you see that if, uh, if um, Maurice Weissmet were done in the past on this kind of uh, universal coronavirus vaccine, we could have had the vaccine uh, ahead of the pandemic or uh, it was uh, an utopistic uh, scenario? Well, I think it would be asking a lot to to assume that we would be able to have done that. I think it's, we don't have any good universal vaccine. Uh, 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 I think, uh, so I, I think that it would be asking a lot to try to to have it expected or, or that, a, that a universal coronavirus vaccine would have existed. There's just, despite SARS and MERS, it was not considered such a serious global threat just because it hasn't been a serious global threat. Of course, now in hindsight, we can go back and say we should have really pushed for serious um, billions of dollars to go into vaccines against coronavirus and try to create a, a, a universal coronavirus vaccine back in 2007 or whenever it might have been. Uh, but. I think we probably will attempt to be creating those in the future. I can't imagine that people are not going to be working on them. So, uh, you know, was it likely and feasible and should it have been produced before this particular pandemic? Probably, I think that's an unlikely scenario, but, uh, and now an impossible one, but uh, in the future, I think we'll try to push for one. Okay, thank you. Next question. Thank you very much for doing this. Um, I'm gonna, I, I wanna ask you a question about testing. And it's very local in the city of Cambridge. Now there are free tests being offered to any resident. And yet there is not a huge demand for people to have these tests. There are not people lined up to get tested. And I'm wondering, I know that, that you, know, you try to, to measure the, um, when you have enough tests by looking at the positivity rate, but is, is there a problem with this that even when you open it up, that people, especially those who, don't, who aren't sick, do not want to be tested? Um, it's very difficult to get. Uh, I, and I'm, I, a, I didn't realize that anyone could be tested. Do you know what the, is this, this is, virus testing, I presume. Right, this is a PCR test. Yeah, so I think that this is a difficult aspect of this virus and any virus. 
I mean, in reality, I don't advocate for everyone to be tested for the virus. Mm -hmm. um, testing for a virus isn't an efficient public health effort. I'd say it's a very inefficient public health effort. It needs to be done in the midst of an outbreak to know who's infected when. Um, and if it can be rolled out very quickly and, and rapidly and across many, many people, great. Uh, but when you're not sick, then there is little utility in testing uh, for the virus. In particular, if you're not sick and the prevalence is very low. Uh, if you know that people around you are sick with this virus, then it makes sense to go and get tested for it. But in Cambridge right now, the prevalence is not particularly high. And, um, and so I'm not surprised to hear that people are not taking up the call to get tested or the offer. Um, do I, I, and I don't think it's a problem either. I think that actually the better way to, to be the better program is, is always serology, I, I think. You know, if you're in terms of ongoing surveillance and monitoring of the population, you want to monitor who has had the virus uh, so that when it does reemerge, you know who is maybe at more risk than others, uh, what the risk of emergence is in the population that you're looking at. So I believe that, uh, that I, I would be interested to know what people would do if the offer on, was on the table for antibody testing mm -hmm. and people could know if they were infected at the height of this epidemic and outbreak. Uh, I believe also that as things open up and if we do see increased cases, at that point, people might again become concerned that they might be uh, exposed. But in general, uh, I think that if you know that you haven't been around people who are sick, um, then people, why go out of your way to get tested if you feel that, you know, if an individual feels that they had very low likelihood of be, becoming exposed and um, it, it's still a transient virus. So even if you were exposed two months ago, then there's no good reason to come back now and get tested. Whereas with antibodies, it's a whole different thing. If you were exposed two years ago, obviously not for this virus, but uh, then you might, and you want to know if you were, then the antibody test will tell you that. And so I think that there are two different things, but I would say that um, it doesn't surprise me that uh, appetite to be uh, tested for this virus has decreased as, as prevalence has gone down. Thank you. I'm going to piggyback on that one real quick. Um, so as things are opening up and uh, people are moving around more, there's been more and more talk about a second wave coming. How do you see testing playing into monitoring for a second wave? And how should that be rolled out? When should that start? And what are your thoughts on that? I think it should start now. It should never have stopped, but I do think that it should shift. Um, I think that one of, the, one of the most powerful tools we have in public health uh, are antibodies. It's why I study antibodies and, and, a, and a whole field called serological surveillance. Um, we rarely talk about virological surveillance as an appropriate way to monitor populations for pathogens. It's just so expensive and so unwieldy uh, because you have to find the person at the moment that they are infected in order to find 
the virus. And so if you're monitoring, what I think Massachusetts should do, and I think the country should do, is uh, not set up these baseline testing things like Massachusetts has done for the nursing homes, for example. But we should set up really well-designed longitudinal surveys where we're, where we're monitoring individuals over time, uh, maybe once a month, take 20,000 people across the state, and frankly, this is something we're doing now, um, or we're trying to get set up anyway. Uh, but you take thousands of people and you monitor them every month and you ask them to put a drop of blood from a finger prick, for example. These are generally practically painless and, um, and you, uh, you have them send in a finger prick uh, drop of blood uh, and you can use that to know if they're seropositive or seronegative. And you do that every month uh, with, with a sufficient number of well-representative people in the population and you can easily, well, not so, not necessarily easy, but you can, you can efficiently monitor for the reemergence of the pathogen. And um, uh, because it's just so much more powerful to do antibody testing because, it's, because the signal lingers with somebody potentially for life. So if they go from negative to negative and then they turn positive a few days after their last test, if it was viral testing once a month, then you'd completely miss it. You'd test negative here, they would get an infection a few days later, and by the time you go back and test again, you would have missed the infection in that person. Antibodies, on the other hand, you test and then they get infected, and then you test another month later, and you'll see that they seroconverted, they became positive. And so that's a very powerful tool to use because you can really space out uh, the number of tests that you do so that you're not trying to capture every individual um, infection, but you're capturing the evidence of the infection. And as long as you're measuring longitudinally in the same person, you can use that to understand, you'll, you'll have a good window of when the infection occurred. And if you do that enough along enough people, then you can actually identify new outbreaks emerging in the population. Uh, so I think that that's what we should be doing now in the state and, and across the country. And, and you get a lot of additional information. Uh, so for example, surveillance so far has been so incredibly focused on the viral testing. But if we look at what's happening in the nursing homes, and a few of us just had an op-ed in the Boston Globe on Monday about this. Um, but the, the nursing homes, the governor, uh, it, not just in Massachusetts, but, but many places are mandating what they call baseline testing in a nursing home and baseline virological testing. So if you go into that nursing home today and you, you, you just do one baseline test of it, you might find that 12% of people are positive. And so then from there on out, people say, oh, that nursing home is 12% positive. But that's not true. Uh, it, without serology, you don't know if that 12% is actually representing the downslope of a big epidemic that just happened and maybe 80% have actually been infected, but only 12% today remain infected, or that they're about to turn, or if everyone's seronegative in that group, uh, in that nursing home, then that 12% could be a, stark, a, a strong warning that they're about to experience a massive outbreak and maybe next week, 40% will be positive. Uh, and so serology in conjunction with that would go a long way to understand if you have already had, if the outbreak has already gone through, or if the outbreak is about to take off. 
So at antibody testing at scale across populations allows you essentially to risk stratify communities and to know where you should allocate resources, for example, um, where you should do enhanced surveillance, where you can let up on surveillance. So it's a way to essentially complement um, PCR testing, which PCR testing and viral testing should be very acute. It should be done acutely in, in clear windows of, of ongoing transmission. And antibody testing is something that just kind of goes on throughout the population um, over time, even in periods when outbreaks are not happening as a true surveillance system to monitor for when they do pick up. So that, that's what I, where I think that things should really um, head from a testing perspective. Okay, great, thank you. Do you have any final thoughts before we go, Dr. Um, I, I find it funny that I just got the, uh, oh, I think I'm quite quoted in it actually from Rob Stein, <laughs> getting an antibody test for the coronavirus. Here's what it won't tell you. That's what was popped up on my phone from NPR. Um, so I, I think, uh, I don't have anything else right now. I think there's a, you should, there's a lot that antibodies won't tell you, uh, but I think it's a tremendously good way to, to monitor the population for new outbreaks. And I think it should become a cornerstone of the US's um, surveillance system for, for both this outbreak, uh, this virus, but also novel viruses as well. And, um, and I hope that the US will get behind serological testing because it's just much more efficient. This concludes the May 22nd press conference.